Welcome to Talk Dizzy to Me, the show that brings you a comprehensive look into the complex field of dizziness. Now here are your hosts, vestibular physical therapist, Dr. Abby Ross and Dr. Danielle Tate. Welcome back to Talk Dizzy to Me. I am Dr. Abby Ross, physical vestibular physical therapist, I should say, a neuroclinical specialist, joined by my co-host, Dr. Danny Tate, also a vestibular physical therapist. And today we have a guest that I used to work very close with. I still work some with for my clients in New York, but this is Dr. Catherine Cho joining us from NYU today. And Dr. Cho, if you want to just give us a little bit about your background, you've got a story behind how you got to this specialty and all the complex cases that you see. Right. So I was initially in movement disorders. Uh, that's where I'm formally trained. And I was studying uh, locomotion with uh, uh, Bernie Cohen and Ted Rafen, who were uh, vestibular specialists in the sense that they were neuroscientists uh, looking at the vestibular system and eye movements. So we tried to uh, correlate that with locomotion, but as I started working with them, we um, kind of fell into the field of vestibular neurology. And uh, it being so common, but so such a lack of expertise, uh, um, it's uh, that you can easily build a practice. So uh, hopefully podcasts like yours will help people get to the doctors straight away or educate uh, other physicians how to treat or approach a dizzy patient, which is not as complicated as it seems. Uh, you know, probably some clinicians hearing this might not agree with that statement that it mm -hmm. is sometimes complicated, but I think that you are so accustomed to seeing the complex dizzy patient and a little mm -hmm. bit later in the show, let's really dive into how you approach a more complex case. Mm -hmm. Before the show, we were talking about how you know, Dr. Cho doesn't see the straightforward unicorn patient that we call them one and done visit type of thing. Dr. Cho right. is the one that you send, the one you can't figure out, the one that needs long-term guidance and care. And yeah, that's who comes into Dr. Cho's office for our listeners. Mm -hmm. But uh, a couple episodes ago, we spoke with Dr. Bay about MDDS and your work with Dr. Dai out of Mount Sinai came up. So right. I wanted to talk a little bit more about that research and what kind of protocol you put into place to help patients with MDDS. So that protocol really was uh, devised and uh, invented by uh, Mingjia Dai. And uh, he was basing it on um, some old papers in the 60s on uh, seasickness or mouth to bark month and uh, this cross-coupling of visual and vestibular input. Uh, so he really just let me try this on somebody and it worked. And so like anything in research, you kind of get a hunch, but you need to study it. And so far, um, they've treated a lot of patients. Uh, one of the weaknesses is that we don't have a great placebo control because patients already kind of know what the protocol is. And what one does is they go into a uh, room that has a projection of stripes, but we're finding that that's not completely necessary. It just needs something that uh, that will involve the peripheral vision. So a small computer screen is not ideal, but maybe one of the big monitors. And the um, the stripes or checkerboard or any visual stimulus, it goes in one direction. So it gives you a sense of motion in the other direction. And you roll the head uh, left and right. And the frequency of the roll was initially uh, determined by the, um, 
the patient's vertigo frequency. So a lot of patients will describe rocking or pulling. Rocking is like uh, we describe it as back and forth and swaying side to side and bobbing up and down. And we try to gauge that frequency and then give the stimulus at that frequency. Uh, for those who have just pulling or something that you can't really determine a frequency of movement, then we just pick a, a 0.2 hertz as the frequency of the rotation of the OKN. Um, uh, so after that, it doesn't take too long, the minute at a time, but there's a lot of reassessments. Uh, patients do feel that their um, symptoms are uh, minimized, not usually completely resolved. So we view treatment as a 50% improvement from their baseline. And it's not a fancy scale, it's a global scale of like, 10, you feel terrible, and zero, you don't feel anything. So we go by that. So when you're figuring out the frequency, is it based on the patient's subjective report? Are they like showing you the motion and then you're basing it off that? Or is there a more advanced way to figure that out? So um, so Sergey Yakushin has taken over uh, Dai's work and uh, he uses a Weibor that's, that's kind of posturography. You could use the, the CDP. Uh, it's a more expensive, uh, less accessible way for the office if you're not if you don't have one already. But um, but a Weibor does, and it traces out the frequency, and you can you can see. Um, and it's also an objective measure of the center of mass, uh, uh, how much it deflects from uh, center. Uh, I uh, use the original um, protocol where uh, Dai actually had an accelerometer on the hand to measure it. So we're in the office. It's not. Um, for research, it doesn't need to be as precise, but I have them just have their hands up like this. And this is their head, the elbow is, you know, with their feet. And I just have them move like where they think they're going. It's not quite intuitive, they have to kind of learn it, but, um, but they, you know, sometimes you can't see what they're feeling. You know, you can see a little bit, everyone has normal sway, but as you mm -hmm. know, with chronic uh, vestibular patients, their proprioception has a higher gain, meaning they're super sensitive. So a slight movement that we determine as normal would be perceived as abnormal to them. So I usually just kind of visually look to see and just count it out. And to be honest, most of the time it ends up being about 0.2 hertz. And it doesn't, I don't find it has to be precise. It has to be around the frequency. Now, is this something that clinicians might be able to now replicate in clinics? Because, you know, we do have the availability of Wii boards or Vertex systems um, that are a little bit mm -hmm. more affordable. Um, even now with the use of VR goggles or even having these bigger systems like the BITS or um, the RK, uh, RKB Instruments uh, board, you know, is that something that we might be able to eventually do as trained clinicians or more I think, for? Yes, I think it's, so it's about time and the practicality. So, you know, patients come to me for the evaluation and sometimes they want to try it out. So it's fine for one or two times, but it is not ideal for someone who's a practicing neurologist or ENT to be doing this themselves. Ideally, this should be done in physical therapy. So every once in a while, I'll, I'll tell the therapist, can you just add in some OKN exercises? Now, um, the problem is, is there's not enough um, definitive evidence that the protocol works enough so that they implement it in their, in their usual treatment um, uh, structures. So usually they'll add it at the end because they want to do traditional um, vestibular therapy. Uh, the other thing that's missing in um, our facility and uh, the rehab center is a big screen. 
you know, where are you going to, where are you going to do this with for patients? So um, it's one of my projects in back burner to work with uh, Tara Denham to see if we can try to devise a, something that's practical because the vestibular therapists are very busy as well. And for select patients to do, because I do think they need more follow-up than just the one-time um, visit. What about something like VR goggles? You know, now we have these goggles that you can put on with just a smartphone that slips in. Is that enough to create that that uh, peripheral stimulation or no? So theoretically, no, but they tried it out and there's a pilot study that uh, I'm, I'm blanking on the uh, first author and he should, definitely should get credit. So perhaps after the show, I'll look up that paper. And, uh, and they did a pilot study on VR goggles and they, it was uh, effective. So, mm-hmm. For people that are outside New York City or uh, Chicago, where some places are doing this, uh, it, it's a reasonable second. Um, Do you know, was his study for symptoms associated with diagnosed MDS, like rocking, swaying, or was it, um, was it more just sensitivity to visual motion? It was specifically MDS. So that's why uh, really, you know, when patients are desperate, when you're chronically dizzy, as I'm sure you know, that they're very desperate and they really want to be in the study. And so I've told patients that they're, they can't, it's for their own benefit. They're not going to get better. It's a big hassle. And, um, you know, I don't find it works for people who don't have MBDS. Okay. But back then in 2014, there weren't clear diagnostic criteria. So we took anybody with a sense of rocking or uh, swaying that was triggered by um, boat, car, ride, plane. And then we also took people that had what we call spontaneous MDDS, which now we're trying to determine as uh, non-motion triggered, motion modulating, non-spinning vertigo. It's a mouthful, but that's what we call spontaneous or atypical MDDS. The main feature, which is uh, different from most, from other chronic vestibular syndromes is that you feel better, almost a weight's lifted when you're in passive motion. So we did capture some patients who didn't have true MDDS, where they act, they sat down in the car and they feel better, but they just feel better sitting down or for some reason better in a car. Maybe it's the visual anchoring, but they don't really feel the rocking while seated. So it's not specific to passive motion. And um, when they stop at the traffic light or something, it doesn't come back. And that one, I think that may be different for people with MDS. Perhaps it t- they have some patients have a more durable effect. So and, uh, to summarize that patients that were studying the first study weren't, some of them, I don't think had MDS in retrospect and they eventually needed follow-up and treatment for their non-spinning vertigo that was probably not MDS. The new, uh, so the subsequent palliative paper with Sergey in 2017 also may have had some of those pitfalls as well. We included the spontaneous quote unquote MDDS patients. Uh, then uh, the Baronet Society, uh, I went on that subcommittee with Yunhee Cha uh, chairing that committee, uh, created a set of diagnostic criteria so that it can help with research and kind of have cleaner studies. Uh, and, and help us uh, distinguish, you know, maybe some patients that don't fit in the silos of MDDS or 3PD or vestibular migraine. Maybe we can tease out certain characteristics and, you know, define these other conditions a little bit better. Yeah, I mean, certainly we reviewed the the new diagnostic 
criteria that came out with Dr. Bay, and it does help you really pinpoint, okay, this is MDDS or, or it is not, mm-hmm. but with, um, with what Sergey does at Mount Sinai, then would you currently recommend anyone that feels that rocking, swaying type motion that gets better with passive motion, that would be a protocol that, or they would be a good candidate for that protocol? Yes, and then to be screened, and uh, you know, he's currently tr- we're trying to do it through uh, research, uh, and because you know it's not fair uh, for patients to go there and you know try this clinic. We need to we need to establish its efficacy a lot more. Uh, but those were the good candidates, and if you don't have that improved improvement with passive motion, then uh, it's you're not ideal for the study because. Uh, you might, you might respond to treatment, but you're not ideal for the study. What does the study look like as far as somebody participating? How, what's the time frame looking like? Uh, if somebody had to come in from out of state, what could they expect? So we, um, even like people that are commuting from, let's say, New Jersey to New York, we want them to stay nearby so that the car rides don't re-trigger. So you come in and you'll stay about four or five days and he'll treat you subsequent days daily. And we don't know if that protocol works, but we did it for practicality reasons because you can't really treat someone once a week if they're coming in from out of, out of state. And if you look at the data, uh, the early data that was shown, that all the patients had the most improvement the first day. And the second and third day, really, you know, it's kind of like the, you know, the histograph bars, the top, the first uh, one was high, and the second, third, and fourth days were already they were pretty low. So, you know, one could argue, does this person need to come in every day if this becomes something that is uh, incorporated into the vestibular therapy program? And then after the fifth day, they go back. Some people have rebound from the flight. Some people feel better. Some people after a year, it comes back, but, um, and some people will never hear from them again because they're fine. Yeah, those are the success stories that we look for, right? The ones right. we don't hear from again. Because so often, even after a certain protocol or after a bout of vestibular therapy and symptoms maybe didn't fully go away, which is so common in all of our diagnoses, really. But mm-hmm. you see the patients who haven't gotten better yet. Those are the ones that come to your office, no matter mm-hmm. how many physicians or physical therapists that they've seen prior. So that's really good to kind of hash that out, though, because when we were speaking to Dr. Uh, Bay about it, we wanted more details about the protocol. And I know you had a a large role in that and still do. Let's shift gears a little bit now to a little bit broader topic and just your approach to treating someone who is a more complex dizzy patient. So not your posterior canal thiasis who comes in, gets an epley and good to go, but Maybe the one who's had dizziness or vague symptoms for years down the line. They've seen Mm -hmm. 20 different healthcare providers and they come to your office. Okay. First of all, I would always recommend doing a Dick's Hall Pike at some point. It's surprising how many times you just, patients don't interpret that rotational vertigo as vertigo. And it's something that can be easily treated. I mean, I myself made that mistake with a concussion patient and thought that her uh, nystagmus was central. And then she ended up having horizontal canal BPPV for four years with this brain fog. And then when we treated her that way, she said one day it just, elimin- it just 
disappeared. This brain fog, her concussion symptoms disappeared. And it's just because all of us were kind of anchored into that diagnosis of concussion. And uh, so I learned my lesson. So it's like, just treat it. If you, it seems like BPPV, just try it, you know? Um, so that being said, uh, some of the patients that come to me, I usually work with local neurologists because, uh, as you know, it's there's, you know, a lot of patients with complex, quote unquote, or undiagnosed chronic disease syndromes. And sometimes it's just about clarifying the diagnosis and kind of mapping out the treatment plan. So common mistakes are missing uh, common uh chronic vestibular syndromes, like 3PD, vestibular migraine, MDDS, or something in between. And uh, many times they come in never having tried vestibular therapy. I think because of social media, it's become less of an issue and that where uh, publications about chronic dizziness have uh, risen in the last 10 years. So other practicing neurologists are a little bit more aware of it. Um, and the treatment is usually medications. You know, I try not to give medications if possible, but when they do, they generally tend to be the SSRIs or SNRIs because of the dependence of serotonin in the vestibular uh, cerebellar syndrome uh, system. And, and it's effects on anxiety and mood that, you know, you have to clarify with patients. I know you weren't an anxious person, but you are now because of this. And just because we have a reason and you weren't like that before, we need to address it now because it's feeding your symptoms. So with, it's a lot of talking and counseling in the beginning. Then after two or three visits, what I do is I kind of let them go back to their general neurologist, and I usually have a treatment plan for them. And it involves several drugs, uh, trying them out at usually one-fourth or, you know, one-half the starting dose. It sounds um ridiculous, but uh, a lot of these patients are very sensitive because uh, they, they're they not biochemically sensitive. They just, everything they perceive is heightened. So they get side effects from everything. So you just got to start low and slow. And oftentimes they're dismissed as being a psychogenic, which is not true. Mm -hmm. What about the, what about the patient who comes in and says, I'm absolutely not taking medication. What else do you have for me? Because it's a no go for me on the meds. So if they have a um, history of migraine, you know, we kind of cast a wide net. I kind of myself get tired of like calling something vestibular migraine when it's not. I call it migraine equivalent or we just haven't um, been specific enough of what the mechanisms are. But sometimes anti-migraine strategies work. Now, if they work, does that mean that the patient has vestibular migraine? Not necessarily. But if they're not going to take any medicines, there are certain supplements that are used that for migraine, which I tend to use magnesium, riboflavin, and ubiquinol, CoQ10. You can they'll use the other kinds of CoQ10, but they tend to not be absorbed as readily. The Butterbur and Feverfew, I am not a big fan of only because um, I, they work for some people, and if it works, it's fine. But I just feel like the nutraceuticals are, are unregulated to begin with, and mm -hmm. uh, herbals are even less so. So uh, so I try to stick with those three. Uh, if they really don't want to do it, then cognitive behavioral therapy, that's also a challenge because of coverage issues. And also the stigma is like, why do I need to, I don't need this. So often it takes like a patient one or two years, and they're like, listen, I'll try the drugs, you know. But, um, but I do have some stubborn patients, um, or I wouldn't call them stubborn, but just they're in control of their condition. 
uh, and that do nothing. But I also explained that doing nothing is doing something too, because to be in a chronic state of pain or dizziness has long-term effects on the brain. We, uh, we've hammered some of these points home a couple of times on our episodes. It sounds like to kind of sum up um, how you approach this is, you know, a multidisciplinary approach is key with a ton of patient education, being open to all avenues of, of that multidisciplinary approach, such as medication, vestibular therapy, um, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy is all important. And it might, it's gonna look different from person to person, but again, there shouldn't be a stigma attached to trying the medications or trying the, the um, cognitive behavioral therapy because there are a ton of aspects and approaches to these complicated patients, especially when they've been suffering for months or years. You know, it's going to be hard to peel away those layers and get them back to normal functioning again. But mm -hmm. it's just taking the time to figure that out and to, to get your patient on board and to get them to be active in their care as well, which is a big feat for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And then also as a clinician, just take a step back and say, did I miss something else? Is there something like a, a fibromyalgia or a chronic fatigue? Is there something that I'm missing that I'm just kind of forcing this diagnosis of 3PD or a migraine equivalent onto this patient? So it's always good to kind of evaluate and just say, wait, maybe I'm being biased. So mm -hmm. and so uh, it, it, it can be it can be tricky and it's very frustrating for the patient and the clinician when someone doesn't get better. And they really are quite debilitated from this. It, it's a life changer. It's amazing, though, how uh, thankful and appreciative patients can be to just have somebody feel like they're listening for the first mm -hmm. time. Right. To sit and listen and to actually approach their care from a different angle. They are appreciative of that just because they've been through so many different people in the healthcare system hitting wall after wall after wall. And a lot mm -hmm. of times, even if you don't know what's going on or you feel like you might have had a bias, it's really great to take a step back and say, hey, listen you know, there might be somebody else out there that has a different approach or idea of what this could be. I'd like for you to explore that while keeping in touch with me. And that kind of just, I think, instills that confidence um, from the patient into who they're working with. And it just it elevates their care. We just have to be uh, not afraid to say, I don't know. We need to look at different things. Definitely. Definitely. And, you know, something else, I feel like both of you have probably had this experience where a patient hasn't been listened to prior They've been made to feel that it's psychogenic. And then they come to you and they say, I know I sound crazy, but this is how I describe it. And you're like, actually, you don't sound crazy. I've heard that 20,000 times before. <laughs> or like my ear, I know there's, I'm like, it's, it's part of it, but it's my ear. And that's also kind of uh, very frightening to have a think that you might be losing your hearing. And it's like, listen, it happens a lot. You definitely want to make sure it is not the ear. You don't want them to lose hearing. But most of the time, it's part of the migraine, um, the ear pain, or TMJ, or, you know, the TMJ has cross-innervation in, in, uh, in the colliculi. And uh, sometimes even moving your jaw can cause tinnitus back there, because that's where sound is, like, uh, processed there. So it's, it's, it's really funny that a lot of things that, you know, you know, if I was practicing, like, 20 years ago, I'd definitely say, okay, this person is, like, thinking too much and, uh, you know, just need to treat the anxiety. And I, I don't blame other physicians for thinking because if you don't see this all the time, you don't recognize this. Oh, this is actually happens to so many different patients in a very specific pattern that it's not necessarily all anxiety. 
it, mm-hmm. there is, you are not human if anxiety and depression don't develop because of this. I, I right. hear it, you know. So That's if you say that I'm not it. depressed, I'm, I'm not going to believe you. <laughs> you should be. You're you're actually not normal if you're not depressed when you're having these symptoms or mm-hmm. anxious about it or stressed about it. Speaking of uh, something you said kind of lent, uh, lended itself to this, what has changed since you started seeing this specific patient population? What has changed since the beginning of your your practice to now or has nothing? I mean, the vestibular world is always developing, so I'm sure there's something, but. I think I am, you know, patients really want a diagnosis, but uh, I am not as likely to just say something is, for example, a migraine equivalent. you know, I used to just say it as a shortcut to give them something to hold on. It's like, this is what I can look up. And is this what is this what's happening? Because they want to read it. They want to know what's happening. So I kind of have, it takes longer time, but you have, I kind of leave them without a diagnosis of a specific, like ICD diagnosis. But I say you have something that we see all the time. We just don't have a name for it. We don't still know enough for it for it to pick the right medication right away. But what we do know is that it can be treatable. And, you know, if you're patient with your, your neurologist, it may take several tries, but we'll find something that will help you. So that's one thing that um, I think I have changed is not try to make it so, try to give them something right away. Um, the second thing is like, uh, sometimes I'll just have when patients I feel aren't ready <laughs> to hear things. Uh, I just wait and this will follow up with me in uh, six months and a year if you, if you still have problems. But again, uh, I really uh, am relying a lot more on uh, the outside neurologist to help me uh, cover these patients. And so that has been quite helpful. And I think the community of neurologists have learned a little bit more about it. Like there are certain people that used to send me their patients all the time, but now they just send me like really tough ones, you know, because I think they've been kind of figured out what, it's not actually that difficult to know what pattern of treatment that I use, right? And it's it's no secret. It's just a, a series of medications, start low, go high, after trying supplements, uh, CBT, and vestibular therapy. And most of these patients come to me, oh, I've already done all that. And so, uh, so I think that's changed from when I first started practicing. I like the idea of not having a specific diagnosis. And it's something that I think a lot of uh, physical therapists getting started in vestibular rehab should listen to and pay attention to because somebody that walks in the door, you don't necessarily need to diagnose that patient, especially if they're coming in off the street. You need to look at their areas of dysfunction and treat the areas of dysfunction. They might look like a hypofunction and who cares what caused the hypofunction as long as there's no red flag screaming at you to get them a referral. You don't have to know if it's neuritis or labyrinthitis, whatever. Just treat the patient's dysfunction and see if you can get their symptoms to decrease rather than uh, pigeonholing them into some specific diagnosis. Yeah, that's the problem with, but that's also the problem of what people's perception of science and medicine is. It is not exact. It is not a priori. You have this, then we must do this, right? It can come from like a parallel. Let's try this, see if it works. And some patients like, I don't want to be treated unless you know what I'm treating. I'm like, well, you have vestibular dysfunction and that's what we're treating. But they always, so it's a challenge to get them away from, uh, I need to know the cause. I need to know the cause. You know, there are several causes, but 
why you are not readapting, we know that there's vestibular dysfunction. That is a cause of how you're feeling that way. So I think that's kind of educating the patients as well that like not having a name doesn't mean that you don't have a diagnosis. Well, even some people with the same diagnosis, I can line up 10 of my vestibular migraine patients in a line and every single one of them is going to have a different deficit or they're going to mm-hmm. present differently or functionally they're going to, they're not going to do the same that they would normally do in a different session compared to somebody else. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you're right. Educating the patient is huge, but individualizing care is, is uniquely important for this patient population just because what works for one doesn't necessarily work for another right. regardless of diagnosis. Yeah, that's all really good. Uh, Dr. Cho, is there any research or anything coming up um, in the vestibular world in your clinic that you want to share with our audience? Uh, so we're working, I'm working with uh, Sergey and getting another protocol up. He's doing all the heavy lifting, really. And uh, we're trying to use the uh, motion sickness protocol that Di developed as well. Um, it's a little bit different than the MDDS protocol. Uh, and it, it was designed for motion sickness. And he's trying to see if that works on uh, vertigo. And this is all non-spinning vertigo, whether uh, it's spontaneous or mo- motion triggered, but you do have to have some alleviation with passive motion. Driving doesn't necessarily count because there's something different about you driving and you being a passenger, mm-hmm. but uh, we're not gonna be so nitpicky about were you triggered by a car or were you triggered by an actual typical motion trigger? Because we want to find out what the differences are, or and if and even if it doesn't matter, what how you got the vertigo, it'd be uh, valuable to know if you respond anyway, or if you're not a good candidate. So that's kind of the next step right now. Very cool. Well, Dr. Cho, thank you so much for joining us. Is there a link, a website? Should we put NYU's link to you? Where can where can our audience find you? Uh, probably just yeah. Google is fine, uh, NYU, and there's um, my name. Uh, and then uh, Dr. Scott Grossman also has a day of clinic where he's dedicating to vestibular patients. If you can't see me or Dr. Grossman, you can see any one of our neurologists they, because we all work together. They are familiar with, but you know, they can get you started. And if they need help, they'll they'll let one of us know. Great. Well, thanks again for joining us. You definitely uh, had some clinical pearls of wisdom for not only our patients, but also our clinicians and how to approach the more complex dizzy patient. So thank you. And thank you all for listening. Thanks Thanks for having me. If you're interested in finding us on social media or the web, you can visit www.vestibular.today for more resources, including testing, treatment, and educational videos, blogs, continuing education classes, and resources including clinic equipment recommendations, suggested tests, and BPMBV treatment charts. Search Vestibular Today and Balancing Act Rehab on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. Also, be sure to check out Balancing Act Rehab at www.balancingactrehab.com, especially if you think you would benefit from vestibular therapy. We are your girls. The information on this podcast is not intended to replace the care provided by your qualified health professional or to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. 
always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on Talk Dizzy to me. Please contact us at Balancing Act Rehab if you think you could benefit from vestibular therapy.